Good evening, our last evening. Conditions arose for us to spend this time together and now conditions are changing. How'd you all do with the talking? (laughs) What was that like? Little volcano effect for some maybe, you know exhaustion afterwards, you know. So I certainly understand if you nod off tonight after that uh, exploration of speech again. So I'll start with a poem. Your first thought when the light snaps on and the black wings clatter about the kitchen is a bat. The clear part of your mind considers rabies. The other part does not consider, knows only to startle and cower away from the slap of its wings, though it is soon clearly not a bat but a moth. And harmless, still you are shy of it. It clings to the hood of the stove, not black, but brown. Its orange eyes sparkle like televisions. Its leg joints are large enough to count. How could you kill it? Where would you hide the body? (laughs) A creature so solid must have room for a soul. And if this is so, why not in a creature half its size? Or half its size again? and so on down to ants and beyond. Clearly it must be saved. (coughs) Caught in a shopping bag and rushed to the front door, afraid to crush it, feeling the plastic rattle loosened in the night air, it batters the porch light, throwing fitful shadows around the landing. That was really a big moth, is all you can say to the doorman, who has watched your whole performance with a smile. The half-compassion and half-horror we feel for the creatures we want not to hurt and prefer not to touch. The half-compassion and half-horror we feel for the creatures we want not to hurt and prefer not to touch. So this author, Craig Arnold, and the the title of the poem is A Very Big Moth, um, is really uh, feeling into the separation between himself and the moth. Working with that interplay, that interesting interplay of of both the rising compassion that he feels for for this creature and the also arising fear of something that's different. I like this poem because I, it, it points to something that's very important to all of us, to our species, and to all creation on this little third rock from the sun. So tonight I want to talk about what I consider to be the fundamental issue, the fundamental issue, 
that in the end, if it's not addressed and ameliorated somehow or some way, will almost assuredly result in the next mass extinction. Now, we may already be in the next mass extinction, but if we don't, if we don't take a look at this particular issue, uh, we will accelerate what's, what's already going on. And of course, I'll, I'll weave in the role of the, our contemplative practice, your meditation practice, and, um, and why ultimately what you learn here, what you've been practicing this week, um, is directly related to the survivability, the sustainability, and the harmony of this creation that we've all been born into. As well as, on the personal level, your personal freedom, happiness, peace. So we can call this challenge that we're facing uh, the divide or the great divide. There's a series of articles in the New York Times, and I think it's still maybe running, I'm not sure, um, that, that address this. Or we could simply call it the issue of separation as we often do in our um, spiritual, contemplative, psychological terminology. Um, Here's a description uh, of the New York Times article. This is what they headline all all the pieces that come in it. The Great Divide is a series on inequality. The haves, the have-nots, and everyone in between in the United States and around the world and its implications for economics, politics, society, and culture. Uh, The series series moderator is a guy named Joseph Stiglitz, who was a Nobel laureate uh, winner in economics, and he served as the chairman of the World Bank, etc. So the great divide, as the Times refers to it, is... currently where we sit as a species in in the movement of of evolution. And admittedly, the story uh, looks a little bleak. But the story's not finished. You know, when I sometimes doubt the long-term survivability or the survivability of our species much longer, I tell myself what I tell my students when they come working with doubt. When someone comes working with doubt, I'll often say, doubt? Well, if you're doubting, really doubt. Really, really, really doubt and go for it. And doubt the doubt. So I I think our species has uh, what I'd call a puncher's chance. Who knows what a puncher's chance is? No boxing fans anymore. It's out of favor. Okay, puncher's chance. You're going to learn something tonight. A skilled boxer is really good with their footwork, the movement of their hands. Think Muhammad Ali. Very skilled. He wasn't necessarily a powerful puncher. And then there are boxers that have their footwork isn't so skilled, their, you know, their, their arm usage isn't so skilled, but they pack a powerful punch. And so when a skilled boxer and a puncher meet, 
nine times out of ten, the skilled boxer wins. But occasionally, the skilled boxer runs into one of those powerful punches. And that's it. So, when I say humanity may have a puncher's chance, can maybe get that one punch in. Maybe we can, maybe we can turn this. Anyway. So the point I want to make uh, tonight, and one of them, the main one, is that all the issues of inequality, discrimination, and exploitation that we see and suffer in this world, whether it is discrimination, exploitation, based on race, ethnicity, class, religion, gender, sexual orientation, disability, you name it. Or the degradation of the environment as is happening is really the result of feelings of separation. Of the construction of and the clinging to the concept of a solid, separate self. It drives all that activity. So when there's a a lack of understanding and empathy for ourselves or for others, there's this separation, this gulf. And if the gulf isn't isn't healed in some way or bridged, it's like an open wound. It's ripe for infection. Prejudice, exploitation. You know, that's on the societal theme. On a personal level, when there is an internal series of gulfs, there's that feeling of alienation, increased fragmentation, and in the worst case, self-loathing. So all week, in different ways, we've been exploring this separation. And we've also talked about how it's natural. It's very, very natural. How out of the vast, undifferentiated, unified cosmic soup, at some point, a cell wall was formed. And that created an inside and an outside. And that was the moment where separation began. Where that little walled thing started to worry about protecting itself in its own capacity. And forgetting the big soup that it had come out of. And so we're off and running, gradually proliferating all different types of feelings of separation. So, as the story goes, our species evolves, we, you know, we stand upright, we form into clans and tribes and these groupings of homo sapiens and we struggle for resources, we struggle for survival, 
often in opposition of other clans and tribes, especially as resources got scarce. And on, on the internal level, there's been also this kind of brewing stew in many of us as individuals of this internal fragmentation, this alienation, yeah, a kind of internal war. And, and many of you have been kind of working with that this week, trying to, trying to bridge that, heal that in some degree. And so you get the result of this external societal struggle for resources and survival combined with this growing internal fragmentation, malaise, whatever you want to call it. And we have this cause and effect which results in, among other things, results in our, the loss of our intimate connection with the environment leaving this nest, the biosphere, as merely just another object to exploit, rather than to cherish, honor, and take care of as a living entity, as part of us, if we can feel the fact that there really isn't any separation there. So, you know, when I think of our species, we're, we really are kind of like adolescents in a, in a lot of ways. We're very sweet, at, and I had two adolescents that I helped grow. Um, very sweet at times. Vast potential. Uh, but their brains aren't fully formed. They can't help it, you know. And as a species... Maybe our brain's not fully formed yet. We still act in silly, irrational ways, driven by forces beyond our awareness. So this poor forgotten nest that, we, that we're living in, you know, is, is wounded. And, and some scientists say, well, you know, we may be past the tipping point. And through my own eyes and experience, I... I've been a scuba diver since the mid-80s. And I've been back to numbers of reefs many times over the years, especially the ones in the Caribbean and some Hawaii and the Red Sea. And I'm watching them die. It's very sad. And people that are working on the reefs and doing what they can and looking at the oceans think, well, maybe we've got another 20 years of living reefs and then we'll have bleached coral rock. but our organism wants to survive it wants to keep us comfortable protect us this conglomerate of systems that is conveniently known as us um, actually loves us And even if you reflect on, as, as you have this week, we've spoken about the hindrances, these challenging energies that obscure who we really are. Even those energies, really the, the, the initial movement for those energies, I'll maintain is an act of love of our organism for us. Look at desire, lust, you know, the wanting. 
Well, what is, what is really going on there? You know, it wants to get us what we need to survive, to be comfortable. And in terms of sexual lust, it wants to keep the DNA going, wants us to connect with others in our herd in a very close, intimate way. An aversion, the not wanting, the pushing away, the anger, you know, the fear. Well, that, that has a protective aspect to us. Get away, get these things away that are not comfortable, you know. You know, we keep thrashing to do that. The intention is decent and loving underneath it, misguided from a wisdom perspective. But the real intention is something that we can honor. And sleepiness, sloth and torpor, the, uh, the, the classical name for that, sloth and torpor. Well, that, that's kind of putting us, anesthetizing us so we don't have to feel something that's maybe difficult a challenging emotion. It has its, you know, hey, I'm going to take care of you, put you asleep here. You won't have to feel anything difficult. And of course, restlessness and worry, planning, 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 lining things up so that everything fits together. And doubt. Okay? Doubt. Skeptical doubt. I don't trust this. Don't trust that. You know, kind of stay back. Nushka talked about walking down the street. There's a pothole. Don't even walk on the street. Just doubt everything, you know. So the intention is loving and supportive. How it manifests is often problematic. So we look for ways to work with these. We develop a broader, wiser perspective on these energies. And we find skillful ways to come into relationship with them. But I find it helpful to always recognize that loving intention from those energies to keep me alive, happy, comfortable forever. You know. We're, we're you know, I want to highlight that we are wired to connect. Whether it's personally, with friends or intimately, partners, lovers, etc. We're, we're wired for that. It's a longing to belong. It's very visceral and deep. It goes way back. It may even be that longing to belong of that first cell that formed up and just, gee, that whole vast thing that I've now separated from. Wasn't that nice? You know, and you know that feeling when you go out in nature and and you have those special places. For some, it's the garden. Uh, for some, it's the woods. For some, it's the ocean. For some, it's mountains or whatever it might be. Uh, but I encourage you, if you don't have a place like that, that kind of brings out that kind of, that allows you to be taken away to be awed, as Wes was talking about last night. Find a place, you know? Even a, even a park in a city, a nice tree that you can relate to. There's something really special and organic about that kind of connection. It's there in us, and it can help heal us. 
you know, when I'm part of my healing process, you know, one was that hike and then, but I've also gone diving uh, several times this year. And it's just, I find it totally ex- an exquisite experience, especially when I, when I dive alone. There's something about that alone and even at night alone where there's just this feeling, this immersion into this, you know, the big mama, the big womb, the giant wet nurse, the, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, back in the soup, the primordial soup, just my breathing, and then feeling all of this. Yeah. So find your spot if you don't have one, or many spots. And we know when ignorance is rampant and the illusion of separation is active, all manner of destructive thought, speech, action can kind of spring loose on the world and on us internally. So when we do look around and we see the horrors of the world, the genocide, the slavery, the exploitation, all that goes on. It's all born from a consciousness that's steeped in the delusion of separation. That's the fundamental cause of these events. So I want to look at something specific now and and illustrate a little more what what I'm getting at. Um, I mean, we could pick any flavor of of separation and explore it a little bit. But I want to go to one of the articles in the Great Divide series. Um, And this one is written by Dan Goldman, uh, who's a longtime meditation teacher and and practitioner. He's written books uh, on emotional intelligence and some other related things. And he calls this article, each of the authors wrote short articles. I'm going to read you the whole article. He calls this article... Rich people just care less. Rich people just care less. Okay? And he writes, Turning a blind eye, giving someone the cold shoulder, looking down on people, seeing right through them. These metaphors for condescending or dismissive behavior are more than just descriptive. They suggest to a surprisingly accurate extent the social distance between those with greater power and those with less. A distance that goes beyond the realm of interpersonal interactions and may exacerbate the soaring inequality in the United States and the world. A growing body of recent recent research shows that people with the most social power pay scant attention to those with little such power. This turning out has been observed, for instance, with strangers in a mere five-minute get-acquainted session where the more powerful person shows fewer signals of paying attention, like nodding or laughing. Higher-status people are also more likely to express disregard through facial expressions and are more likely to take over the conversation and interrupt or look past the other speaker. Bringing the micropolitics of interpersonal attention to the understanding of social power, researchers are suggesting, 
has implications for public policy. Of course, in any society, social power is relative. Any of us may be higher or lower in a given interaction, and the research shows the effect still prevails. Though the more powerful pay less attention to us than we do to them, in other situations, we are relatively higher on the totem pole of status, and we too tend to pay less attention to those a rung or two down. A prerequisite to empathy is simply paying attention to the person in pain. 2008, social psychologists from Amsterdam and Berkeley studied a pair of studied pairs of strangers telling one another about difficulties they had been through, like a divorce or a death of a loved one. The researchers found that the differential expressed itself in the playing down of suffering. The more powerful were less compassionate toward the hardships described by the less powerful. Datcher Keltner, uh, prof at Berkeley, and uh, Michael Krauss, uh, prof at uh, University of Illinois, uh, have done a lot of research on social power and attention deficit, and the attention deficit. Keltner suggests that in general we focus the most on those we value most. While the wealthy, while, while the wealthy can hire help, those with few material assets are more likely to value their social assets, like the neighbor who will keep an eye on your child from the time she gets home from school until the time you get home from work. The financial difference ends up creating a behavioral difference. Poor people are better attuned to interpersonal relations with those of the same strata and the more powerful than the rich are because they have to be. I remember when I was um, I was just starting out in, in, in business and I was behind and I needed to borrow some money. I had two small children at the time. My wife at the time was an artist. There wasn't much money coming in. And uh, so I contacted three of my buddies. Two of them were of about the same status I was at the time economically and one had some means. And all three said, yeah, I'd be glad to help. Two of them, no questions, said, checks in the mail. Third said, I'll be glad to get to it later in the week. I'll have my lawyer draw up the, you know, draw up the agreement. And, of course, that was the wealthy person. And I completely understand that. But it was like those kind of close to the edge, they, they, they weren't interested in anything other than, oh, you need help, here it comes. Anyway, Keltner's research finds that the poor compared with the wealthy have keenly attuned interpersonal attention in all directions in general. Those with the most power in society seem to pay particular little, particularly little attention to those with the least power. To be sure, high-status people do attend to those of equal rank, but not as well as those of low status do. This, of course, has profound implications for social behavior and governmental policy. Tuning into the needs and feelings of another person is a pre prerequisite to empathy, which in turn can lead to understanding, concern, and if the circumstances are right, compassionate action. In contrast, extensive interpersonal contact counteracts biases by letting people from hostile groups get to know one another as individuals and even friends. Tom Pettigrew, uh, 
a professor at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, analyzed more than 500 studies on intergroup contact. Mr. Pettigrew, who was born in Virginia in 1931 and lived there until going to Harvard for graduate school, told me in an email, uh, Goldman, that the, that the rampant racism in the Virginia of my childhood, it was, it was the rampant racism in the Virginia of my childhood that led him to study prejudice. In his research, he found that even in areas where ethnic groups were in conflict and viewed one another through the lenses of negative stereotypes, individuals who had close friends within the other group exhibited little or no such prejudice. They seemed to realize the many ways those demonized others were just like me. Whether such friendly social contact would overcome the divide between those with more and less social and economic power was not studied, but I suspect it would help. Since the 1970s, the gap between the rich and everyone else has skyrocketed. Income equality is at its highest, income inequality is at its highest level in a century. This widening gulf between the haves and have nots have the haves and have less troubles me, but not for the obvious reasons. Apart from the financial inequities, I fear the expansion of an entirely different gap caused by the inability to see oneself in a less advantaged person's shoes. Reducing the economic gap may be impossible without also addressing the gap in empathy. So let's try a little exercise. You just settle in and close your eyes. Go inside. Take some deeper breaths. Feel your body breathing, sitting, alive. I want you to bring to mind someone who you know or an acquaintance that you consider of higher status than you. Visualize them, get a felt sense of what it's like to be near them. Really feel their presence. even construct the room where, or the place where you might meet them, the conditions. Now feel your body in the presence of this higher status being. When you're in interaction, what's, what's your level of attentional energy? Are you giving them your full attention? Are you fully with them? Might you even notice yourself leaning into the interaction?
and in this constructed experiment, are there any moments where you sense their disinterest? Does their attention to you drift? Are there any moments where you feel them looking through you? Now, continuing the reflection, kind of leaving that situation, but staying within yourself, now bring to mind someone of lesser status than you. Someone you might encounter in your daily life uh, or may encounter occasionally. Take a moment and find that person. and bring them into as vivid a visualization and felt sense as you are able. Picture the surroundings. And what is going on in your body now as you encounter this person? Kind of explore your attentional field toward this individual. Are you open and paying careful attention? Is there a little bit of a hurry up in in your sensibility? Do your thoughts run right past them as to what's next? Okay. Maybe you maybe you got a little visceral sense of what Goldman is uh, talking about. You know, I, a really great example that I remember in my own, uh, in my own uh, experience, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was switching over careers at the time. I was much younger. And, uh, uh, and so I was going to take a job as a real estate broker. So I went around to all the usual companies and, they all seem kind of the same. They're very well organized. Everyone dresses nice. They seem to drive decent cars and they have a kind of scene in the office. They all look kind of the same. And I had a friend who told me, go see this one guy. He might match up with you. So I called him and he says, well, I'm not hiring anybody. I, you know, it's just me and, you know, working here. I said, well, can we talk? Maybe you can give me some help where to aim me. So I go to the office and 
you know, I go in, there's a dog running around. This guy shows up in a flannel shirt and no socks and some running shoes. And I'm thinking, I already like this guy. So I did my best to kind of, you know, charm him up. And he said, well, all right, come to work with, you know, for me here. I'll help you get started. But, you know, and so as it turned out, this fellow was one of the major developers in the area. I never paid attention to who was developing what. He'd built several shopping centers, etc. And he was a kind of a power broker in, in Charlottesville. And the one particular time that stands out in my mind I was doing some stuff in the office and copying things or whatever, and uh, he was in the process of planning the next big shopping center, and there were investors down from New York, and he had several of his architects, and their architects were there, and there's a couple of lawyers there, you know, so it was quite the scene in, in the conference room. And uh, this laborer comes to the office, and, and Betty, the secretary, who's also the uh, uh, sister-in-law of Frank, my, my boss, mentor, uh, sees this guy, welcomes him. Obviously, he's taking a break from whatever job he's on. His you know, boots are muddy. He's, kinda, he's been working. And so she said, well, just, just wait here one second. And so she writes a note, and she takes it in, hands a note to Frank, who's in the middle of this meeting. Two seconds later, he's out, you know, welcoming this guy, pouring him some coffee, getting, getting him some snacks, and he sits down with him. And I'm kind of watching, knowing all this is going on in the other room. Of course, he's got his, some of his people in there too. And so he says to him, well, just, you know, I've got to go back in, finish up a few things, but a few minutes, we're going to break for lunch and we'll hang out. So he goes in and sure enough, he comes out and he sits down with this guy and he spends time with him. And this other whole entourage, they go to lunch and he stays there in the office with this guy and spends considerable time with him. And I was kind of, you know, my heart just flooded open with the demonstration of what I was seeing. This very successful man taking time from a very important meeting to be fully present with this other man, obviously multiple class levels below, treating him with genuine affection, interest, respect. It was beautiful to see. So that's a kind of an important lesson that I'll, that I'll never forget. And, you know, often fall down in emulating on an absolutely consistent basis. So, Goldman's article, uh, that, little, that little story about my, my business mentor, um, basically looking at class, but we, the difference in class, but we could, we could really pick anything race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, disability, whatever, whatever the separation is. So where does your practice come into play with, uh, with, with this kind of flavor of disconnect? 
this mindfulness that you've been sharpening up this week of knowing what's happening when it's happening. It really does give you a choice and a chance. By first recognizing that gulf when it appears, you know, feeling what it's like when you're pulling, pulling your intention and empathy away from someone of, in these examples, a different class. Or maybe a feeling a, a little clutch or retraction when you encounter someone from uh, the other group, whatever that might be to you. And we didn't, I don't think we articulated it this week. Uh, the acronym RAIN, do many of you know that? If you've been to retreats, you've probably heard it. Anybody not heard that acronym? No? Briefly, it's, it's a way to kind of conceptualize working with challenging emotions and situations uh, like this. And so, but the first thing is you have to R, R, recognize, okay? R-A-I-N, recognize what's happening. You know, so we clutch, we kind of withdraw, the cell wall gets really thick in, in that moment. We recognize it. A, allow. You know, allow it to happen. This is what's happening. Accept it. A, accept, allow. I, become intimate with it. Investigate it a little bit. Allow it its full it's full play. Allow it to kind of bloom within you, not pushing, not grasping, just, but learning about it. And then N, which is non-identification, which you almost don't even have to think about. If you've recognized what's going on, if you've allowed it and accepted it in a kind of kindly, welcoming way, you're becoming intimate with it, investigating it. You're not identified. You're not lost in it. You have a different relationship to it, a healthier relationship to it. So So that's rain. In Charlottesville, in our, excuse me, in Charlottesville, in our sangha, we, uh, uh, we did a series of, of courses and we called it Bridging Separation. And what it was, was for each week, uh, those who signed up, there was about 50 people, <clears throat> we would take a look at ourselves and our relationship to one particular type of separation. Week one, we did racism. Week two, we did around class, we got to ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, disability. We did them all. And the homework assignment was that when we experienced that kind of retraction or that separation from another or another group, we would then kind of apply our practice as best we were able in that moment with the intention to... um, bridge that separation in, in some way. And, and out of that, our, our, our current and, and for the foreseeable future, we're, we're working on uh, taking a look at racism. And admittedly, it's 
mostly a bunch of us white folks um, taking a look at our white privilege and trying to come become more aware of that and then trying to uh, determine what how to modify our behaviors and what kind of skillful actions we can and speech we can take part in to kind of help the situation as opposed to making it worse in terms of racism. All of us have been conditioned by our families and our culture. I mean, that's just the way it goes. The family that I came out of was working poor in New Jersey. Neither parent had more than a fourth grade education. My father could have taught Archie Bunker everything that he showed. And that those, some of you are too young for that, but some of you know. <clears throat> he, had, he, and I'm just a kid, but he used every ethnic and racial slur known to humankind. You know, and, and it was kind of schizophrenic because on the other hand, one of the laws of the household for me was, look, when there are public service workers outside working on the sewers or taking care of the, the electric lines or whatever or the cleaning the streets or the, or the garbage trucker come by, you get some water or Kool-Aid or whatever we have in the refrigerator and take it out to them especially on any hot days, and you offer them something to drink, they're working really hard and they're not getting paid anything. And, you know, so there was this like weird mix of compassion and then this weird stuff he was pouring into me. So I got both, you know. Um, and I'm going to be purging myself of some of this stuff up to the day they throw the dirt in on me. I know that. It's challenging, it's humbling, and it takes time. So as part of my practice, if I notice a somatic recoil in, in a situation from somebody different or one of my dad's tape loops gets loose in my head for a moment, um, I know it's time to just slow it right down. You know, feel that separation, feel that contraction. Feel that self as it's solidifying away from other. To, to inhabit and live in that separation for a while, to feel it. And feel it with kindness for myself. I didn't set this up. I didn't ask for this. And then after feeling it for a while, see, see what it's like to kind of extend that field of kindness and acceptance to include the other person and kind of little by little exercise it. So we don't ask for these conditioned reactions, you know, these things that we've been conditioned to. But they're there. And may whatever arise, whatever that is, may it serve to awaken. Grist for the mill, as Ram Dass used to say, probably still does say. Another poem. <clears throat> this one's called Burned Man. And he's writing about his, uh, his father. 
When I was 12, a man was burned not quite to death at my father's factory. Recovered enough to walk the town, he didn't know what to do with himself. A ghost whose scarred, fire-bubbled face made you look away. Though not my father, who felt responsible and so wouldn't refuse the man's eyes when they fell upon him. The burned man held no grudge, thought the accident his own fault, and sought my father out as the one whose eyes told him, yes, he was still alive. So they, they held long conversations on the post office stoop, which I observed from the car where I waited, where I could read my father's stiff shoulders, the way he clutched the mail, how he tilted his head, even his smile that was in truth a grimace. I knew just what my mother knew. My father had to let himself be tortured once or twice a week whenever Bernard Sawyers saw him in town, lifted his claw of a hand, rasped out his greeting that sounded like a raven that had been taught to say, Hello, Mr. Huddle, how are you? They'd stand there talking in the town's blazing sunlight, the one whom fire had taken to the edge of death and the other invisibly burning while they passed the time of day. It's by David Huddle. His father is struggling across the divide. Shame, guilt for what had happened in his factory. Trying to cross the gulf of disability. He's Oftentimes, in those situations, they're uncomfortable, awkward, and it requires courage. This man had courage. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta I mentioned the other night, it's been mentioned before, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, we could probably rename it if we wanted to be revisionaries and call it the Bridging Separation Sutta, the Crossing the Divide Sutta. In those instructions in the Sutta, like the instructions you've received here this week, the Buddha guides you in essence really to, to heal any internal separation, to come to, to, to really know intimately the movements of the mind, the body, Emotions, moods, as they change and change some more, and to accept them all with uh, as much grace and tenderness as you can bring to it. Asking us to cultivate ways to become, in a sense, accepting and and comfortable in our own skin. And to begin to find ways to love yourself. These heart practices in this countenance of accepting with tenderness and gentleness whatever is happening to the best of our ability. Now in the refrain part of the sutta, uh, the Buddha says this, and I've always found it interesting. 
in this way she abides contemplating the body as a body internally and externally, and both internally and externally. So here the Buddha is encouraging you to extend your awareness outside to bridge, include. So this practice is more than just finding ways to come to an internal peace. It is that in reducing stress. But it's more. It's directed. It's extending the field of care and acceptance beyond us. This is a relational practice. It's the cultivation of intimacy with all things. Bridging all divides, great and small. This from Pema Chodron. The only reason we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us that we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to deal with. To the, to the degree that we took, that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. To the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. That internal compassion Cultivating it there creates an ease in the extending of that. This from Thich Nhat Hanh. Meditation is about awareness of what is going on, not only within oneself, but all around you. Care for yourself first, then you can better care for others. You have to learn how to help others while still practicing mindful breathing. Dwelling in the present moment is the only way to truly develop peace and transform our suffering both in oneself and in the world. And from Black Elk. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell and I understand more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. So I hope you can see the beautiful progression of this practice that you've engaged in this week. the possibilities of bridging and healing internally and then the effect of that in our wounded world. This from Chief Luther Standing Bear. He says, the old Lakota was wise. He knew that the human heart away from nature becomes hard. He knew that lack of respect for growing living things soon led to lack of respect for humans too. He's saying that the street goes both ways. 
that separation from nature plays a role in our fragmentation inside ourself and our disconnection from others. There's a monastery in uh, southern Thailand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's monastery. He's dead now. But he was kind of the Ajahn of, of nature loving. He really felt his students needed to feel the nature of nature first. In fact, I've been told when people come, went to that monastery, he'd say, okay, you can just spend some time in the forest soak it up, see what you can feel and learn about how nature works, how it feels, your connection. And then once you kind of got that down, come on in, we'll give you some techniques, teach you all about the Buddha, etc. Kind of interesting perspective. I'm struck, as many of you probably have been, about the astronauts reporting back on their experience when they're in orbit or beyond orbit, you know, those who've traveled to the moon, etc. You've probably heard some. This from Ed, Edgar Mitchell writes, it was all there, suspended in the cosmos on that fragile little sphere. What I experienced was a grand epiphany accompanied by exhilaration, an event I would later refer to in terms that could not be more foreign to my upbringing in West Texas. From that moment on, my life would take a radically different course. What I experienced during that three-day trip home was nothing short of an overwhelming sense of universal connectedness. I actually felt what has been described as an ecstasy of unity. I perceived the universe as in some way conscious. The thought was so large, it seemed inexpressible, and to a large degree, it still is. So Mitchell experienced that separation, that dissolving. A profound experience that's informed his life. I'd love to talk to him. Um just to see whether that particular experience, that kind of sudden awakening or satori or whatever, you, whatever we want to refer to it as, uh, I wonder if that bridged the other separations that he might have gone into space with from his West Texas upbringing. Did it bridge in any way help the separation that he might feel around race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whatever his particular flavors of felt separation were. I just wonder, you know. I have a sense that if we heal one form of separation, whichever one we pick to work on and cultivate with, that it, that it does have the capacity to generalize to all the other forms of separation. Now, Mitchell's experience came out of this extraordinary, or his, his epiphany, his understanding came out of this extraordinary set of conditions. He's an astronaut. 
I read most of your sheets. I don't think there are any astronauts here. Raise your hand if you are. <clears throat> so, most of you don't have that opportunity. But you do have your mindfulness practice. So tonight I've, I've tried to articulate what I think is an important way to frame this, this practice. Bridging all the divides, all the separations. And gosh, there's so many flavors of felt separation. And that internal disconnect and separation that we feel that causes us so much pain. And that rigid, tight grip on the sense of solid, separate self that wreaks so much havoc in the world. And so we do have all these many years of kind of conditioning, conditioned prejudice and felt separation in one form or another. And mindfulness practice really can help heal that. And I think that's the true heart of our practice. Recognizing that felt sense of separation when it arises. Experiencing it fully with tenderness. And seeing its insubstantiality. Just this simple process. Step toward healing, peace, and freedom. Then as we turn our full attention to the other, be it a person or some other creature, great or small, a little moth, or we turn it to this precious, living, conscious earth and really feeling in to them from the position of empathy, from the position, the felt connection. That anything that we say or do is likely to be more skillful in reducing suffering, our own, and the suffering on this little planet. We can feel it in a week like this together when we're in support of one another, the best that we are able. We can feel the potential of this species. All the love that's in us, the tears of compassion that have, that have been shed here. There's a lot of caring, an awful lot of goodness in our species. And so I want to finish with just a few words from Whitman. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine. And the north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness.
Let's just sit for a moment. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. Thanks for your attention tonight. And we'll reconvene at the usual time, the usual place. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.